Hey, this is Charlie Warzel, and I'm one of the co-hosts of No One Knows Anything. This week, we have a special bonus episode where I interview the three directors of the new Netflix documentary, Get Me Roger Stone. Uh, for those of you who may not know Roger Stone, he's been described as sort of the Forrest Gump of politics and is sort of a person who lives in the underbelly of a lot of the things that have happened um, in Republican politics since Watergate. It was a really fascinating conversation. We talked a little bit about what it's like to interview people who are professional trolls. And we spoke a little bit about what it's like to spend six years uh, kind of delving into this universe and interviewing people who are now totally unwilling to speak on this exact subject, uh, in- including Donald Trump. Anyway, this was a really fascinating conversation for me, and I learned quite a lot, and, and I hope you do too. So let's take a listen. So joining me in the studio right now are Morgan Pekma. Uh, Dylan Bank and Daniel DeMauro, who are the three directors of Get Me Roger Stone, the Netflix documentary um, that I and I think my entire Twitter feed have watched uh, over the weekend <laughs> or, in, or in the recent days. So thank you guys uh, for coming in to talk. Thank um, you so much, Charlie. Great to be here. You guys have been working on this for five years, right? Uh, almost six Take me back a little bit to, you know, when this germ of an idea was kind of kicking around in your guys' heads. And I'm really curious about what brought you guys to Roger. He's definitely always been a character, but I feel like at that point he was kind of under the radar. And and, and I'm curious, you know, what, what, what really sort of made you feel like he could hold uh, a documentary like this? Well, I was moderating a panel of some of New York City's top political mm-hmm. journalists, and Roger was in the audience because he likes to have relationships with reporters. And afterwards, uh, a mutual friend introduced me, and I could tell that all the eyes in the room were on us, and I knew it wasn't because of me, and there was this murmur, and all of a sudden, I felt like, wow, this is somebody who has a captivating presence. So I went home. I read an article in The New Yorker by Jeffrey Tubin about Stone, and I shared it with Dan and with Dylan, and immediately we were just completely hooked. And what we saw in Stone was the opportunity to talk about the degradation of our politics since Watergate through the lens of somebody who was a bodybuilding, pot-smoking dandy with a (laughs) tattoo of Richard Nixon's face between his shoulder blades, who was a swinger, that he was somebody who was so riveting as a character that even people who had no interest in politics could be drawn into a story that we felt like was deeply important to tell. I mean, did you guys get a sense when you you first kind of like leapt into the the research, et, et cetera, that was Stone doing anything at the time, I guess, that made you feel like he was gonna be that he was sort of charging back into sort of relevancy, I guess? Well, you know, he was really at the nadir of his career Uh, at the time we approached him doing low-level dirty tricks for corporate clients and, you know, running Kristen Davis, the Manhattan Madam, for governor of New York and stuff, uh, you know, very low-level kind of local stuff. We really never knew at the end of our journey that, you know, he would be at the pinnacle of his career, but he always had many schemes going and one of them was running Trump for president which you know 6 years ago we thought was you know as ridiculous as everyone else thought what did it take to get him to cooperate was was it easy was it 
Yeah. How, how well, hard was it to convince him? To well, certainly up? it took a little courting uh, to get him to, you know, open up to right. us so much. I mean, he sat for, you know, 60 interviews. We interviewed, you know, his ex-wives. We interviewed his best friends, his protégés, his best enemies also. And so it, it definitely took um, a little convincing. But one of the reasons we were drawn to Roger to begin with is that while most dirty tricksters, uh, if you ask them about their work, they'll say, you know, no, I'm not a dirty trickster. That guy over there did the dirty. You're the dirty trickster. Roger is happy to tap the mic and say, I'm the one that destroyed you. So having some liberal filmmakers kind of challenge him a little bit and uh, uh, spar with him, if you will, is exciting to Roger. And so uh, he was happy to take us on eventually. Were these kind of contentious interviews or was it sort of just like we put, in a, put the microphone in and just get his, his side? You know, we had the full range. I mean, we had extremely contentious interviews with him. And the problem is when you ask Roger really pointed questions where you're like, Roger, like this is total BS, like this is, you're just talking us in circles. He switches into this mode where he just hits you with a flurry of talking points. Mm -hmm. He is absolutely immune to that type of probing. There's, there's no gotcha question that will like suddenly break through Roger's veneer and get to his core and make him cry Barbara Walter style. He, <laughs> uh, he knows how to take the most aggressive questioning possible and just deflect it. And not only, th not, he doesn't throw it back at you, he just grounds it mercilessly into the floor where it just is so tedious and just empty. Um, so, you know, the, the fact that we interviewed him so many times, we would know what were the questions that would just lead down into the black hole. And um, so, you know, you, you name it, we've asked Roger that question. <laughs> um, but the questions that he doesn't want to answer, he just, you know, would turn into nothing answers. And, and, you know, and not only that, they were like 20 minute long answers of nothingness where we're all looking at our watches like, when the hell is this answer right. going to be over? Yeah. But sometimes the best way to really get to Roger was certainly not when we were pressing him. It was over the drink, over lunch. And there's a shot actually in our film. People have asked us if it was a hidden camera shot because it's just a weird shot, which is, it was not. We were interviewing him all day, but we placed the camera on the table. Yes. And yes. Uh, we were asking him about his boondoggle of the Reform Party in 2000, which uh, basically tanked a third party to help put George W. Bush in power. And that was the time where he really kind of relaxed and just completely fully admitted to us, yep, that was the plan. One thing I, I'm curious about is when you're dealing with a subject who is so charming and who has such a fluency with reporters and with the press and with journalists of all of all kinds he makes friends very easily you know did, did, you, did you guys feel that there was that sort of uh, seduction quality that he puts on and, and and how and how you sort of deal with that while also maintaining you know your arm's length in a f almost six year long project I mean, we did over 110 interviews with people about Roger. We interviewed him so many times, spent hundreds and hundreds of hours with him, both on camera and off camera. We've seen Roger be a good friend to people. We've seen Roger have a very positive relationship with his family. But, I mean, we couldn't have been more disgusted by the effect that he's had on the nation. Mm -hmm. And even just spending election night with him was just an extraordinary emotional torment for us um, where we were grappling with the experience of a, a completely different perspective on what was going down. But here we were 
essentially in silence behind the camera or just asking questions to try to, you know, evoke as much as we could from the experience. But Roger and Alex Jones, I mean, they were in pig heaven. And one of our producers had to kind of um, just excuse herself at one point because she was sobbing. So, I mean, that type of counterpoint was never lost on us. And it wasn't lost on Roger either. I mean, we absolutely transparent with the way that we felt with things uh, about things with Roger. He knows exactly where we're coming from. And um, neither of us were deterred from moving forward with the project, despite the fact that that was the case. Right. In one respect, I mean, I'm curious, you mentioned Alex Jones. I I profiled him recently, and he's he had there are similar things with him. One of the things is that he sort of never stops. He is the guy who off camera that he is on camera. Is that the sense that you get with Roger, or how do, how does are there two Rogers, three Rogers? You know, how does that how does that work? In from what you saw, well, we say we uh, started with Roger when he was at the low point of his career. He was down, but definitely not out. Roger loves it. He gets up every day wanting to destroy, wanting to get into the media, wanting to throw that bomb. And so he had all sorts of schemes that he was doing at the time, uh, which he absolutely loved doing and which he was having a ball doing. He would run his mate for local office over and over again. And uh, he, uh, we filmed him doing a fake uh, Occupy Wall Street protest for two corporate clients. It was uh, a battle between two banks. And uh, Roger bragged to us that back in the day, he would have had to go down to the bus station and bribe bums with beer, but nowadays he, days he had Craigslist. And, uh, you know, so he had a ball doing things like that. And so that's part of why Roger is so successful is he doesn't have to drag himself out of bed to uh, try and write some boring propaganda for a candidate. He leaps out of bed to make some exciting, smarmy propaganda for a candidate. And, and you know, uh, I'm Alex Jones and, and Roger Stone, I mean, they're well, uh, as Roger said when they met, it was kismet, right? And they're really birds of a feather, but, you know, I mean, they're different in, in a lot of ways. Um, you know, we don't really understand what's going on in Alex Jones's head. But, you know, for Roger, he, he says in the film, don't confuse Roger Stone with the Stephen Colbert, Roger Stone character that I play. And we also recognize maybe that's kind of giving him a pass that he's just you know, so crazy and outrageous and sometimes disgusting and despicable, but it's just this kind of role that he plays. But at the same time, I think we really, after six years, we've learned that, you know, he's just playing an exaggerated version of himself. Uh, whether that's true of Alex Jones, who knows? And, and Charlie, your article was so good in kind of getting to the root possibly of what Alex Jones's psychoses are as this really volatile, excessive, over-the-top character. And a lot of people have asked us, you know, why didn't you explain how Roger Stone became Roger Stone? And the truth is that there isn't some sort of psychosis that is easy to identify in a Freudian way. He wasn't molested as a child. He wasn't beaten up by liberals. He had a very pedestrian, conservative, blue-collar, middle-class upbringing. His parents loved him. His sisters loved him. He, he seemed to have a really content, boring childhood. But what he always had was this insatiable fascination and addiction to politics. 
And he was already working on campaigns when he was in his early teens. He was successfully running campaigns when he was in his later teens, as, as his first wife says in our movie. He would be electing people to serious office. And these politicians, grown-up politicians, would call him when he was a freshman in his dorm room at George Washington University and asking him how to vote on key issues. He is as much a political animal and a, and a political prodigy, I think, as anybody in American history. And we have extraordinary respect for Roger's brilliance. You know, a lot of times we want to not give credit to people who don't share our worldview. We're like, oh, they're idiots or they're evil. I mean, you know, Roger's definitely not an idiot. Roger is a methodical Absolutely. And sometimes he, uh, you know, gets caught up in his own internal volatility and he makes stupid moves. We definitely saw him do that a lot. But on balance, Roger is as brilliant a political operative as anybody operating in America today. And that's why so many people have said, get me Roger Stone. You described him as, you know, this has this insatiable desire to be around and to create political chaos to be in the center of that. It seems so much that I, I guess one thing that's leveled on on Donald Trump all the time is that there's no real like core ideology behind him other than, you know, the desire to be in it and to have it be about him. And it feels like there's a similarity maybe with Stone with the idea of needing to be around it, needing to be the agent of chaos and change. Did you get a sense of, of real politics there or was it more just the game? One of the things we make a very strong case for, I believe, in our film is that uh, one of Roger's rules and Roger's rules in general, which is uh, these political rules that he operates with, um, in many ways guided the Trump administration as well, or the Trump campaign and now the Trump administration, which is uh, win at all costs. Uh, attack, 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 never defend. And they were willing to kind of say and do what they thought would get the crowd going. And there were a couple moments of clarity where Trump would kind of accidentally admit, oh, uh, drain the swamp. One of my aides told me to say that and everyone uh, cheered so well. And so he said it again. And then we see what his version of draining the swamp is. It's uh, Manafort and Roger Stone, the people who, uh, as Harry Siegel says, literally put up that rigging of the, the system that's rigged. And uh, so now we're seeing in many ways the results of a, uh, a presidency that isn't really grounded in any solid philosophy. That's mostly grounded in I want to win and I also want to be the agent of chaos. I, I could have see, I could see Roger just as easily having become a Democrat and gone the same route just on the left. You know, what you have to remember is that at the time when Roger at 12 years old reads Conscience of a Conservative, that's like the revolutionary upstart. Like those are the guys who are trying to shake up the system and do something uh, different. Roger really gravitates to that. Uh, his love of chaos, his love of, of being the outsider, of disruption, of challenging the status quo. That was the, the time that Roger got into politics and, and the Nixonians, now we think of them as the, as the status quo. But Nixon himself was always battling against the establishment. He felt like he was an outcast. And Roger really builds his relationship with Nixon, who is one of his two mentors, after, after Nixon has resigned from office. And I think about that. Who, who gravitates to the post-disgraced Nixon, right? This wasn't when Nixon was on top. This is when Nixon was in virtual hiding from everybody in America. And Roger was in awe of that figure. 
So in terms of being the, the bomb thrower, and, and I think you saw this in Trump too, the disruptor, the person who would go in and smash things. That's what Roger wants to do. And that's why he'll just as easily work for someone like Al Sharpton on the Democratic side, because Al Sharpton is also that agitator who will go in and disrupt things and is also just as morally malleable and kind of empty as Roger is. One of the things that I feel like was so amazing about watching this was the cast of of, of characters that you guys managed to assemble over. And, and part of that, I feel, uh, has to do with spending so long on this. Um, with with some people like Paul Manafort, who was uh, Trump's campaign manager for a brief time and uh, Roger Stone's lobbying partner, um, and is now sort of in the middle of this swirling uh, Russia investigation, um, a, a lot of those people might not be willing to talk right now. Um, and I'm curious a little bit about um, about getting some of those people. And, and were people like, say, let's use Paul Manafort, willing to just kind of come up and talk about their old buddy? Or were these like really, you know, hard fought and won uh, opportunities to get people like him to talk? Oh, Paul Manafort, he was the sweetest plum for us to get. It was a very, very difficult dance to get him to talk to us. He is a man with a lot of secrets, and he is not easy to get him to loosen up those secrets. And uh, he was working with the Trump campaign, and there was a very small window of time between when he was in and the big guy, and then when there was a little too much heat about around him, the whole Russian thing really began to take off, and his name was linked with people, and these weren't just names they were thrown out. He was really linked with these people in many ways, and uh, he got pushed out in a way that maybe he wasn't so thrilled about. So he never really dishes on Trump in some negative way. He, he's not so stupid as to go that far as uh, to, to dish uh, in a way that will really shoot him in the foot. But he said way more than he normally would have, uh, uh, even three weeks beforehand or three weeks after when he was in many ways taken back into the Trump fold and his lips have been uh, resealed. You know, and that's the thing that's lost when you're just the casual viewer of the movie that we are so aware of. I mean, we asked Paul Manafort for an interview in excess of four years. Uh, and Manafort would send these cryptic emails and he would seem to agree and we would be like, maybe we have to go to the Ukraine to interview this guy. And then he would pull back. And uh, same thing with Charlie Black, who is a lesser figure in our movie, but absolutely just as fascinating. I mean, if you look at the pictures of the Republican nominee invariably for president when they're on their plane, Charlie Black is always sitting next to that person every four years. He's John McCain's best friend. He's been a chief advisor to every single Republican candidate. And the although we didn't meet Black and Manafort, they became familiar with us because we were stalking Roger for so long. And I, I think it's safe to say that we are among the world's experts on Black Manafort and Stone. I mean, we have read and experienced and spoke with every single person who could possibly weigh in on that. So one of, one of the most fascinating sort of segments of the film is, is about um, Black Manafort and Stone, which is a, a lobbying firm that Stone was a, was a partner of. Can you tell me a little bit about the, the creation of that and, and explain to, to people who, who've yet to see the film a little bit about how, how crucial that was to Stone's legacy and to the political legacy? Well, Black Manafort and Stone uh, was really a revolutionary lobbying and consulting firm in Washington. It was the first firm that combined both consulting and lobbying. So 
Charlie Black, Paul Manafort, who, of course, you know, later became the chairman of Trump's campaign and, and Roger Stone. They were working for Reagan in 80. They helped get Reagan elected. Uh, they created a consultancy operation. And then just immediately after Reagan went into office, they're like, hmm, a lot of people are asking about lobbying. You know, they all know we're close to Reagan, so we should start a lobbying firm. They did, and they never looked back, and they really kind of created this revolving door of consultancy and lobbying, which really was an unwritten rule that hadn't been broken up until that point. And they made millions of dollars, and people wouldn't bat an eye at it today um, because it's so common. Uh, all, all the firms are double-breasted, as, as they were called. But it really was the first firm to bring that flow of corporate influence with a direct pipeline right to the White House. One additional thing about Black Manafort and Stone that's fascinating, and we don't touch upon this in our film, but later on they became Black Manafort, Stone, and Kelly. And Peter Kelly was one of the top Democratic operatives. And that was another line that they crossed where they were the first bipartisan lobbying firm. And that speaks to their moral malleability, right? They were in, in a lot of the presidential races and, and integral races to the, to the country at the time, they would be on every single side. Right. So they would be getting money from the Democratic candidate, money from the Republican candidate. They had the whole system triangulated. Uh, and so they were only too happy to take money from anybody who would be willing to pay them. I, I, I love the, the quote where he's he's proud of his time uh, as a lobbyist because it made him a lot of money. Well, he was actually saying that in the context of us challenging them on representing murderous third world dictators like Ferdinand Marcos and Mobutu Sese Seko and Jonas Savimbi. And we thought that was just obviously such a devastating admission that as, as much as we could finger wag and be like, this is appalling behavior, the fact that he was just so shameless in that regard, um, we felt like that was the most powerful statement that we could put forward. But in terms of whether other people we interviewed were just as shameless, Paul Manafort and Charlie Black, they have their own account of that. And wh what they say is, the United States supported those dictators at the time. This was the policy of the Reagan administration. We were being good patriots by supporting an agenda that aligned with our country. In their minds, they never crossed into the realm of something that was either anti-American or you know, at odds with their core values. I think one of the interesting things about that Black Manafort Stone and the lobbying bit and I think what what this film does so well is is really show Stone as one of the first people to embrace that shamelessness. One of Roger and Black Manafort and Stone's greatest uh, inventions, or I guess not inventions, but uh, accomplishments, um, was uh, the furthering of the super PAC with Nick PAC, where it was right in, in its birth. They didn't do literally the first one, but they did the first one that mattered. And uh, that in many ways created a million Roger Stones because Roger was the one or is the one who's willing to put himself out front. But what the super PAC, as we've seen, has done has allowed everyone to be their only their little Roger Stone in their room and be as shameless and say the, the half truth or the zero truth that sounds great. And it, it doesn't have the direct fingerprint of the candidate anymore like it used to. And that has just changed the ball game in a way that uh, has resulted in where we are right now. One of the things that you said, Dylan, about Black Manafort and Stone creating a whole bunch of Roger Stones, it speaks to something that really struck me in, in this documentary as someone who covers sort of the new emerging pro-Trump media world, which is the, the parallels that 
that sort of time in the in the 80s has to now you know they called themselves the new right and they said that they were willing to use a politics of fear and uh, were unafraid of you know doing whatever it takes and some of those things mike cernovich who is a uh, a pro-trump media personality he identifies as a member of the new right he has said almost verbatim you know we're not afraid to use a politics of fear we're not afraid to use this I guess what's it like now to look at the state of the political media on the right after having been through this and now coming out the other side and seeing that influence everywhere? I mean, is it just totally apparent to you guys <laughs> in everything you see? Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Roger brags that this is the age of stone. And one of the things that um, our film really tries to make apparent is that Roger was integral in creating this corrupt system, the swamp, with uh, the things we've been talking about, Black Metaphor and Stone, Nick Pack, and a million other details we don't have eight months to talk about. And then in many ways rebelled against it, calling it corrupt, and joined Alex Jones and identified that group of the alt-right and the new right who then came and said, no, we're going to tear down that terrible thing that Roger in many ways helped build. And Roger operated, uh, operates on the philosophy very proudly that hate is a more powerful motivator than love. And that is, uh, in many ways, how the Trump campaign gained a lot of traction. And sure, you might like Trump, but you really hate Hillary Clinton. And that's really what got people to come out, uh, at least for, in many ways, the, uh, the emerging right, um, the alt-right. And um, Roger, it, it isn't some secret uh, to him that he's a part of that. Like I said, he calls it the age of stone. You know, Roger does want to to pollinate himself and his ethos on the world. And one of the moments that Dan and Dylan captured was when Roger first meets Alex Jones at the 50th anniversary of the Kennedy assassination. Roger wrote um, a book he calls himself an alternative historian, whatever the hell that means, basically like liar. And um, he, um, you know, he wrote this book pinning the Kennedy assassination on, on JFK and he went down to Dealey Plaza and Alex Jones was there and, you know, they just absolutely hit it off. Jones saw in Roger somebody who could legitimize and validate himself because of Roger's extraordinary um, connection with history and all the seminal figures in the Republican Party. And Roger saw somebody with a mass audience of absolute fanatics who hung on Jones's every word. And that was, in a lot of ways, I think, a seminal moment in the creation of the alt-right, because this was back in 2013. The term alt-right didn't even exist. And Roger already understood the potency that the alt-right could have on the country, and he latched into it. And initially, we thought this was almost a sign of desperation on Roger's behalf that he would align himself with this group. But ultimately, we realized it was genius um, how he, again, time and again, he just saw the potency of something that everybody else thought was impotent. So I, I think I have time for, for one more question, but I think this all sort of sets up what you guys show throughout the entire film, which is that, yeah, he might always be in the room, but his influence is sometimes unclear, right? Like, is it just that he's really good at being in that room where the things happen, or is he the one that is constantly, you know, the actual change agent? And where did you guys kind of come down on that line? Is he the guy who's in the room, and he's just sort of saying he's in the room, 
and he's making some stuff, or is he the actual, anytime he's in the room, the agent of, of change? Roger never met a scandal he didn't like. And we're living uh, right now in these Russia hearing world where it's actually very difficult to tell whether Roger had anything to do with it, whether he knew any advanced knowledge, or whether he just bragged like maybe he did and it's coming to bite him in the ass. But it doesn't really bite him in the ass because he's on TV and we're talking about him, aren't we? Um, And Roger has the uncanny ability to either find himself in the room saying the nefarious things or people thought he was the guy in the room saying the nefarious things. And he's more than happy to take any sort of credit he can. I think that's a great place to leave it. Thank you guys so much for coming. Um, Get Me Roger Stone is on Netflix right now, and I think you should all go and watch it. Thank you guys so much. Thank Thank you, Charlie. Charlie. Thanks.